Thank you, Bertie. It's good to be with you this morning and to uh, bring the Word of God. And I trust that God will help us and bless us as we meet together. I'd like you to turn with me, please, in your Bible to the book of Esther. Now, Esther, of course, for those of you who are aware, I'm sure, is a very unique little book in the Bible. It doesn't mention the name of God, and yet we can see God throughout the book. So uh, we're going to break into this little book in chapter 2, Esther and chapter 2. And we're going to commence to read, please, from the verse 5. Esther chapter 2 and verse 5. And leading up to this passage that we're going to read is the king of Persia, Ahasuerus. And the king of Persia has, for a number of perhaps unwise reasons, but nevertheless in a drunken state, he has deposed his wife. And so a decision is made to get a replacement. And one of the possible replacements will be a Jewess, and her name is Esther. And so we're breaking into uh, the story at that point. So in Esther chapter 2, and we're commencing to read in verse 5. Now in Shushan the palace there was a certain Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity, which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried away. And he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, that is his cousin, for she had neither father nor mother, and the maid was fair and beautiful. Mordecai, when her father and mother were dead, took for, uh, took for his own daughter. So it came to pass when the king's commandment and his decree was heard, and when many maidens were gathered together to Shushan the palace to the custody of Haggai, that Esther was brought also unto the king's house to the custody, to the custody of Haggai, king or keeper of the women. And the maiden pleased him, and she obtained kindness of him, and he speedily gave her things for purification with such things as belonged to her, and seven maidens, which were meet to be given her out of the king's house. And he preferred her and maids unto the best place of the house of the women. Esther had not showed her people nor her kindred, for Mordecai had charged her that she should not show it. And Mordecai walked uh, every day before the court to the women's house to know how Esther did and what should become of her. And when every maid's turn was come to go in to the king Ahasuerus, after that she had been twelve months according to the manner of the women, for so were the days of their purifications accomplished, to wit six months of the oil of myrrh and six months with sweet odors and with other things for the purifying of the women." You come over with me, please, to verse uh, 18. We're going to read 16, I beg your pardon. So Esther was taken <clears throat> unto King Ahasuerus into his house uh, royal in the tenth month, which is the month Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. And the king loved Esther above all women, and she obtained favor and grace in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown upon her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. 
Amen. And we know God will bless the reading of his word. Let's unite in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can come together around thy precious word. We thank you that your word is truth, and we thank you that your word is exalted above your name. We pray that, Lord, you would speak to us through your truth. We pray that you would open our hearts. We ask, Lord, that you would open our spirit and our mind and our entire personality to the work of the word of God and to the Holy Spirit. I pray that you would cleanse and sanctify me as I give myself unreservedly to you. I pray, Lord, for the anointing oil of the Holy Spirit, that you would grant that enabling and that help that only God can give. And I pray, Lord, that we would all sense and know your presence. Put a hedge around us and grant us an awareness that the Lord is here. So we ask you for help. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. I want to speak to you on Esther and the finger of God. As I've pointed out, Esther, of course, is a character, the main character in this little book, obviously a woman whom God is ultimately to use to deliver the nation of Israel. Undoubtedly, this is the greatest crisis of all crises for the Jewish people. We think of Hitler and in, in, for some people in their lifetime of killing six million Jews. But uh, the catastrophic uh, wiping out of six million was not going to be as, as uh, desperate as what was to happen under Esther. This was going to be a complete and total removal of all Jews, their complete annihilation. Uh, Hitler would not have been able to do that. He would have wanted, but there were other uh, Jews in countries he couldn't get to. But for Mordecai, who was defending them, and for Esther, there was going to be no safe place or for any Jews. And so she became ultimately the key in the deliverance of the people. And if you went to Israel in around about the 9th, 10th of March, uh, you would find there would be a feast in Israel. And it's called the Feast of Purim. Purim simply means lots, lot as in lot for throwing a dice. And of course, Haman, the one who was orchestrating the death of the Jews, had used lots or divination through occultic power to attempt to get a date that would be most suitable for the wiping out of the Jews. And uh, when he gave that, got his ultimate um, details from the diviners, uh, it was about a year. They said, in about a year's time, we'll give you a specific date, and then you'll be able to wipe these people out. So he really felt he had the leading of um, the gods, as it were, demonic power, but uh, he felt he was, he, was, he was on a winner. And the Bible uh, tells us that he ultimately was defeated. But as I said, if you go to Israel today, the Feast of Purim's on. And what happens is uh, the children and adults give presents to one another, quite like Christmas here. And uh, people tend to be more friendly than normal. Uh, there's a lot of fun, a lot of games. People put on masks. 
And uh, the book of Esther is always read in Israel. It's read in the home, it's read in uh, the synagogues, and wherever other uh, places there would be when it's read. And what's very uh, makes it very humorous for children and young people is that whenever the name Haman is read, all the little children squeal and bang their feet, and uh, they make as much noise as possible so that Haman's name is not heard. And of course, that's a very deliberate act to remind the children as they grew up uh, of their heritage that they were attempted to be destroyed by the enemies of God. And that's ingrained into the psyche of the Jewish people uh, because to this day there are still those who want to annihilate them and destroy them. So the background, of course, is this uh, great turning event uh, and we want to look at not so much as the details of the book, because that would take us too long. But I want to look simply at Esther herself, this young, beautiful woman that becomes the deliverer for the nation of the Jews. When we look at Old Testament names, we discover that there's always a deeper significance uh, to names. And Jews, especially, and Old Testament characters, when names were given, there was a significance. Now, we don't tend to do that. We just call people by whatever name, and we just say that's a nice name. But, of course, in biblical times, it wasn't like that. There was a purpose to the name. The name had a meaning. And Esther was no different. Esther's name had a meaning. And this is the wonderful thing about when you read the Bible, and I hope you all do, that if you take time to do a little bit of studying and read a little deeper, sometimes you will get some gems, some gold that is buried. And the gems can't be found unless you bury, unless you dig for them. If you go to South Africa, you'll find there are huge abandoned uh, mines, and in those mines they're now derelict. But if you go down into the shafts, you'll see the places where the great nuggets of gold and diamonds were found. But they had to be dug for to get them. And so you and I have to do some digging if we want to get the gold from the Bible. And so the book of uh, Esther, uh, with her name, uh, signifies the myrtle. That's the meaning of her name, according to the Hebrew scholars. It means the myrtle or the myrtle tree. Now, we're not familiar with myrtle trees here, but they're quite common in Israel. The myrtle tree, of course, was a, a little tree that was symbolic of love and used always in marriages. And so it had that connotation. It also was a little plant or shrub that grew into a tree, and it was white. Uh, it had white flowers and much foliage, and it was very beautiful. And of course, also, it had a beautiful fragrance. The smell of the myrtle tree was beautiful. And that, of course, speaks of Esther. The Holy Spirit is presenting to us uh, something more than a name. It talks of a person who has love in them, who has the love of God or the Holy Spirit indwelling her. She had a beauty, a physical beauty, but then there's a deeper beauty which becomes apparent whenever she comes to this point of crisis. And there's a fragrance from her, uh, again produced by the Lord. But also we discover that the name uh, Esther, meaning uh, myrtle tree, has another meaning, which is very significant. 
And that is in Isaiah 55 and 13, one of the prophecies that the Lord gave through the prophet Isaiah was that in a future day, a day whenever the curse of the earth would be lifted, the briars, the thorns, the nettles, those things that are so, uh, uh, we're so accustomed to a curse that will not be lifted until God removes it at the latter days. But the Lord covenants and he says, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree as an everlasting covenant. And so the myrtle tree speaks of the promises of God. Whenever anybody of Jewish descent would see a myrtle tree, they would think the same as what we think when we see the rainbow. And when you see the rainbow, you're immediately reminded that there won't be another flood that will cover the whole earth. That's God's covenant to man. And so the myrtle tree would have done the same for the Jews. They would remember that God is not going to uh, destroy Israel. He's going to lift the curse and the myrtle tree is there. It's going to grow in its place. So her name represents these things, the promises of God, and of course, this beauty and fragrance and love that we have mentioned. But when we look at the person of Esther, we discover a young woman who's very sad. We don't find a young woman who's uh, had a really wonderful upbringing and has everything going in her favor along with her beauty. But quite the contrary, we find that this is a young woman who has lost so much. Uh, in growing up. In the verse uh, 6 uh, that we looked at in chapter 2, we discover regarding her cousin, it says that uh, Mordecai, her cousin, had been carried away from Jerusalem with the captivity which had been carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah. And then it says in verse 7, and he brought up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. This young woman had lost her parents uh, early on in life. Uh, She was very young, and we don't know what caused their death. It could have been during the time whenever uh, the uh, Persian Empire had gone in and taken possession of Israel and overthrown the country and taken these people as captives and brought them up to the Persian Empire, brought them up to the palace where they would serve the king. So she had lost this connection via her mother and her father. But also we discover that she had uh, lost also her home. All that she associated uh, childhood and early years with was all gone. She was removed from her home. She was removed from her nationality, that is, her her sense of identity as a Jewess was gone. The temple was gone. The scriptures were gone. The law was gone. It was all gone. Everything that that the Jews had believed would ever be with them, had they had lost it through their unbelief and through their uh, disobedience to God. And so she finds herself with neither parents nor home nationality and indeed no freedom either. You see, when she was brought up to the courts and her beauty was discovered, she was brought before the king, and the king was not like the kings that we have today. He was an absolute monarch. And he was really, when you read the history, much of a a tyrant, really, because 
when you came into the palace, when you came before the king, if he didn't summon you and you decided, oh, I'll just go and see the king and I'll go into the, to the throne room, he had a scepter, a golden scepter in his hand. And if he didn't hold that out to you, you died. If you disturbed him, no matter who you were, whether you were his wife, the queen, anybody, if you went in and he didn't ask you to come in, there was a real chance he would put you to death. But if he held the scepter out to you, then he would permit you to live. He literally had the power of life and death. And so this this um, young girl is in this environment where she is ultimately to become queen. But she doesn't have the freedoms that you would expect of a queen. She goes into his bedchamber and then immediately she's removed and put in another place. And she stays there until the king would so ask for her. She's not the only woman in his life. He has multiplicity of uh, wives, of concubines. So she's really tied in there. She can't do as she chooses. There's a lot of restrictions. There's no freedom, certainly. And so that's the life for this young girl. And as we've stated, the Jews at this time found themselves having lost their nationality and lost the word of God and lost the commandments and laws. They certainly weren't living as God wished them to live because they had departed from the scripture and they had lost the scripture. And so it's into this environment that this great threat comes to the nation of Israel. What I want you to notice about this young woman that's to become a great deliverer is that she's not a law unto herself. She's not, uh, you know, running the show. Quite the contrary, we find that uh, in the principle of headship mentioned in the Bible that this woman is under the authority or headship of a man. Now, it's very important that we understand this. Now, the symbol of headship uh, is is uh, some people take it as hair, some people have it as a head covering. And I don't want to go into that area, but what I want to go into is the part that people often miss in that truth. And, and it's the most important part, ironically, that is the part that's missed. And that is, what does this head covering symbolize? What is the meaning of this thing? Why is it there? And the symbolism behind it is very important because it's spiritual. It's something that may not be understood in the physical realm or the natural realm, but certainly understood in the spiritual realm. And it's very simple that God is the head of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus is the head of every man. And every man is the head of every woman. Say, well, it sounds a bit as though the women are, you know, don't get a, a good, a good going in this. They're kind of, you know, poorly treated. Well, that certainly was never in God's mind. That was certainly not. I was talking to a man recently. He had just become a Christian three years ago. He was from the Roman Catholic faith and he's very bright for the Lord. And he said, I was at a church in Straban and he said, I was invited to a baptism and we went up and he said, my wife and I, He said it was the most unusual thing. He said the women sat. He said they couldn't even give out the tea. He said they weren't allowed to give out tea. And we found out afterwards that was part of the rules of the church. The women sat and they did nothing. 
And all these big farmers were hunting around cups. And if I had them in there, I would have preferred probably the women were going around the cups rather than the farmers. No harm to you. But nevertheless, that was... Now, how they got that and extrapolated that from the scripture, I have no idea how they did that. But that's where they are. But certainly the Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. But what the Bible does teach, if you go back to the book of Genesis, something very simple, and that is that Eve was deceived by the tempter. You see, women tend to have a better spiritual sense than men. To put it like this, they have an antennae that's longer. And they tend to be more sensitive to spiritual things than men. More women tend to be converted than men. More women tend to run and rule the prayer meeting, not rule it, but pray in it, than men. It's just a general rule. Men's antennae, because of the fall, tend to be shorter than it should be. And so the problem was that Eve was deceived. Adam was not deceived. He willfully went into sin. And so the Lord, knowing that a woman has a longer antennae, that there's always a danger of deception. God says, I'm going to put a protector for the woman. I'm going to put a covering over her. It's not in any way that she's substandard, quite the contrary. He said it's just a protector because her antennae is a little longer and the danger of deception is just there. And God says, that's what I'm dealing with. And that's what was in God's mind when he was ordering things like this. And so what we find very interesting is this individual Mordecai who is her covering. God has Mordecai as the cover for Esther. I want you to see how he covers her. First of all, we read in verse 10 that we've read, but if you read in verse 20, very interesting little verse, in Esther chapter 2 and verse 20, Esther had not yet showed her kindred nor her people, that is, she didn't show these people that she was a Jewess, for Mordecai had charged her. For Esther did the commandment of Mordecai like as when she was brought up with him. Here is Mordecai giving counsel to his cousin. He said to her, I don't want you to reveal that we are Jews. Now, the reason he did this was because he could see something that she, being so young, could not see. He could see that there were real dangers in the revealing of this. And you know, there are times in our Christian walk, as we walk with the Lord, that there are times when the Lord may not want us to say or reveal certain things. I have found that over many years, that on occasions I have talked to people who are fine Christians. And I have talked with them, and I have felt a desire to share something, and then this this kind of, you know thing rises inside and says, don't tell them. And I can't quite understand it. I don't know why I'm doing it, but there's this very strong feeling and urge within. And when that first happened to me many years ago, I felt really bad because I felt, you know, I'm judging this person. Why do I not want to say this? And I I couldn't understand why this was happening. And it was all quite mysterious. And I talked to a friend of, of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was over preaching here. And that friend of Martin Lloyd-Jones said to me when I told him about it, he said, that's what Martin Lloyd-Jones called the check of the Spirit. 
It's the check of the Holy Spirit. He says it's the Holy Spirit rising up in you and identifying that there's a problem and you need to be careful. It's the Holy Spirit attempting to protect you because this person may in time to come do something on you. This person, if they have this information, may use it to hurt you. And so the Holy Spirit may rise up and say, I don't want you to do this. I don't wish you to go there, whatever it might be. And you might not understand why. But all you know is that there's this inner sense and witness saying, don't go there or don't do that or don't uh, take this, whatever it might be. Now, of course, sometimes people can say, God showed me to do this, and God showed me to do that, and God. And very often when you hear people at every breath saying God showed them, you can be pretty sure God didn't show them anything. Because God doesn't work like that. You don't get showed everything every day. It's not like that. But there are people like that, and everything's God stuck to it. No matter what they eat their breakfast, what they do, God had some part in it. And it, it really... It's almost a form of blasphemy because it's drawing God's name into all these things that are important to God, but we don't need to trail his name into it in that sense. And it kind of sometimes demeans God and, and makes God and our walk with God quite foolish to other people. Well, let's move on. First of all, he counseled her. And he gave her good counsel. And that's what a head should do. That's what a husband or a father should do, is giving counsel uh, to his wife. It's not, it's not dominating. Domination is not of God. Domination is control. It is demonic. It is not of the Holy Spirit. Domin- any form of domination, control, or manipulation is never the Holy Spirit in any format, whether it comes in the form of manipulation whether it comes in the form of domination, whatever, it's never the Holy Spirit. And one thing I have learned as a Christian over many years is I will never, ever yield to anybody who attempts to dominate, control, or manipulate me. I'll never do it because I know it's demonic. And the enemy is using the person at that moment to get their way. It's never of God. It's the flesh, and it's always driven demonically. When we're under the control of the Holy Spirit, he will guide us. He will control the situation. When we're totally submitted to him, then we can let things go and let God be God. And we know that God will overrule. And that's, of course, what happened in this case. This woman was prepared to obey and submit. And so she did to him, and he gave her counsel. But then in verse 11, it says in chapter 2, that every day Mordecai walked to the court to know how Esther was. He not only gave her counsel, that is, he wasn't just telling her what to do, but he was there every day to see how she was. He cared for her. And you see, friends, it's very important in headship that there's care. There's a care for the person, a genuine care for their needs, a care that they're okay. It's a loving thing. And so this is not just one aspect of telling me what to do, but this is someone who really cares for me. That's true. That's true headship. 
Then also, and finally, in chapter 4 and verse 14, we read at that crisis in her life, in chapter 4 and 14, she is under pressure to go to see the king who who hasn't invited her to come, and he, if he doesn't hold out the scepter to her, she's going to die. So he challenges her because of the threat to the Jews, and he says to her in verse 14 of chapter 4, For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, if you don't go in to see the king, he said, Then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? This was a real rebuke to her. This was, this was really a, 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 a real um, caution, a caution being thrown out to her. He said, listen, don't be a coward, Esther. You have a ministry. You have a calling. You, you, you have a purpose. You have an objective. I'm, I'm your head, but I can see that God has a calling on your life, and this is your moment. I, I can see that God has you lined up, and who knows whether you're actually in this position now for such a time as this. This man wasn't dominating uh, as a head over a woman to say, well, you're under me, and I'm the boss, and I'll do everything. No, 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 no. He said, listen, Yes, I am there to cover you. I am there to guide you. I am there to pray for you. I am there to assist you. But here's here I can see that God has something for you to do. Here I can see this is something that I can't do. I'm not able to do this. This is this is you, Esther. This is you. And 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 sadly, sometimes in a lot of our churches and fellowships, women are relegated to this position that they're you know you, you know you just do the cleaning up and say amen whenever you you know. And dear friends, when you read the Bible in its entirety, you discover yes, women have a calling and men are the head. But but sometimes I do fear that we have got a lot of it wrong, a lot of it wrong. Some of the greatest Christians I have ever met. Who, who walked with God were women. <laughs> were women. Martin Lloyd Jones, the great uh, pastor in in uh, in, in London, w- was very opposed to women in any virtually any form of ministry until he heard Mary Peckham. And when he heard Mary Peckham speaking, there was such an anointing of the Holy Spirit upon her life that Martin Lloyd Jones actually changed his position after hearing her. Because he realized that it wasn't possible that God would so anoint a person with the Holy Ghost if they were not in his will. But nevertheless, let's move on. This woman did not only come under headship, but she was teachable. She had a teachable spirit. And when we read of some of the unconverted people that she went in before them, whenever she was being prepared to go before the king, if he would choose her to be the queen, different people who were unconverted Persians, she went in before them and she was willing to learn from them. She had a teachable spirit. You know, it's very important that you have a teachable spirit. One of the saddest things I have found on the journey is people I have known over the years, over the last 30 years of Christian ministry. And when I knew them when they were young, they were teachable. And they were asking questions and they were giving comments. And But today they know everything. They know everything now. 
They've kind of become the fourth member of the Trinity. They know everything. There's no point in talking to them. And when they come to see you, it's not a conversation, it's a monologue. They tell you where you're wrong. And that's very sad. That's very sad. Because, friends, I believe that the more you walk with God, and the more you learn about God, the more you realize how little you know about God. The vastness of God himself means that whenever you're spending time learning about him and about his ways, about his people, about his word, about the spirit world, that you realize as you delve into different areas here and there, as God leads you on the journey, you discover that this little area that I have delved into is vast. And I'm only touching the surface. And and it gets to the extent where you say, like Paul, he said, who is sufficient for these things? Paul said, I feel so insignificant when I read and understand and grasp what the Holy Spirit is revealing. He said, who is able for this task? And so she was teachable. And you need to be teachable. You need to ask God to make you teachable. And remember that she not only learned from Mordecai, but she learned from unconverted people. And sometimes unconverted people in certain areas have more wisdom than Christians. And sometimes you can pick up gems from people that are not even converted that are very helpful. They're biblical principles. They're not Christians, but they can have biblical principles. And over the years, I have learned so much on the journey from unconverted people. She was learning. I want you to notice that whenever she came into her position of being chosen as a virgin to go, to be chosen perhaps for queen, she didn't know at that time, that the Bible says when she went into the royal palace, there was this man called Haggai. And whenever she met him, the Bible says that he just liked her. (laughs) In chapter 2, 8 and 9, she just, he just liked her and it says that she pleased him and obtained kindness of him and he just, he just opened it wide. I mean, he gave her everything. <laughs> he just gave her maidens. He put her in the same, best place. The purification, uh, uh, particular, um, kind of thing that you had to go through for purification, the rituals and so on. Uh, he opened the best door. He just did it. Well, how did that happen? Well, that was what we call favor. That was the Lord's favor. You see, the Lord can open doors for people. The Lord can give favor. That is never earned. You see, that's the difference between being in the will of God and being either in the flesh or a non-converted person. This is the way the fleshly Christian or the unconverted man walks. I'll tramp over you, and I'll outwit you, and I'll maneuver my way around you and over you, and basically it's like what the politicians call the greasy pole. I'll pull my way up that pole and I'll stand on whoever I want to on their faces or necks and I'll climb and clamber over them and I'll get to the top of that pole. And I'll get there, but I don't care 
who I have left behind. And I don't care whose lives I have ruined. And I don't care who I have left in financial crises or whatever way their lives are messed up. I don't care. That's the way the ungodly and the fleshly Christian live. Now, it's sad that you have to associate that behavior with people that say they're Christians. I was told recently by a pastor of a man that I know well. And he said that that man got work done at his home and big farm, got a lot of steel, got it into the farm, and things weren't just the way he wanted. And so he had all this steel belonging to a young man who was starting a business who also happened to be a Christian. And the young man who who had all this steel left in his farm, but they had a, a, a kind of a dispute over it. This young man told the pastor, he said, I've gone out of business. Gone out of business. He says, the man that that I was doing the work for, we had a disagreement and I went up to get the spur steel that that he hasn't even used, but it's really my steel. And he said, he, he told me, you're not allowed to take it, and if you do, I'll, I'll have the judge after you. <laughs> the man who did it is a leader. He's an elder in a so-called evangelical church. But the evangelical is with the emphasis on the jelly. Emphasis on the jelly. I'll walk over you. I'll tramp you into the ground, but I'll come and sing on a Sunday. And I'll be the elder and I'll tell you how to live. Well, whenever the Lord gives you favor, you never do things like that. Never. Because you see, your life is yielded to God and you believe in your heart of hearts that God's in control. And you believe that God will look after you. And you believe God will make a way for you. And so you don't have to do that. And like one writer, he said, when God has selected you, it doesn't matter who else has rejected or neglected you. God's favor outweighs all opposition. And God will stand for you. And he'll come through for you. And sometimes it's hard, but if you wait on him, God will come through for you. Well, very quickly, not only was there favor for this young woman, but there was preparation. And I want you to notice this very quickly. In chapter 2 and verse 12, this young woman had 12 months of preparation to go before the king. And the Bible says explicitly that the main ingredient that was to be used was six months of myrrh. And then six months of other spices. You remember the Lord Jesus, whenever the wise men came with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, gold spoke of his kingship. Frankincense spoke of his priesthood. And myrrh spoke of his death and burial. You see, friends, before you can go before the king and become familiar with the king and be recognized by the king, you'll have to have some myrrh treatment. Myrrh speaks of death. Myrrh speaks of embalming. 
Myrrh speaks of suffering. That's why Jesus got it at birth when he was a young child. It was prophetically speaking of the fact he was a king and a priest, but he was going to die. But this woman, before she goes to see the king, you see, it would have been lovely if she just got nothing but spices. A whole year of lovely spices and just kind of wonderful things happening all the time. Just heaven on earth all the time and then just come in before the king. That'd be lovely. But that's not the way it happened. There had to be six months of myrrh. There had to be pain. There had to be death. There had to be burial before she could go before the king. And until we embrace the myrrh, unless we permit the myrrh to do its work in our lives to bring us, that is the difficult things, the hard things, the disappointing things in life, that we take them on board as part of God's preparation to bring us to the king. The dying to self. Dying to my ambition, my will, my idea, what I want, whatever it might be, even as a Christian, that I want a great ministry, that I want to be a great success, that I want to be greatly known. You can have lots of ambitions as a Christian that are not remotely God-glorifying because they're all about self. It's for me. I want me to be seen. And so death has to take place. Die to self. Very painful. But I die. I die to myself. And he said six months of myrrh. And so she went through the myrrh. But I want you to notice, you don't have to look it up. But if you're familiar with Exodus 30, which is the anointing oil that was used in the tabernacle. The Bible says there was a specific way in which the anointing oil was to be made. There were certain ingredients. God says, don't mess about with them. Don't bring in something of your... He said, there's none like it. He said, you can't, you can't fiddle about with the anointing oil. There's only certain ingredients, and that makes the oil. There's, it can't be replicated in any way. In other words, God says, this is a picture of the Holy Spirit, and he said, you can't interfere. But do you know the main ingredient in the anointing oil? Myrrh. The main ingredient... See, people say, I want the Holy Spirit. I want God's blessing. I want God to use me. I want this. I want that. And I want the anointing. I want You want the myrrh? It's the main ingredient. Main ingredient. <laughs> Not by chance. Death to self. <laughs> Jesus says, come along and die with me on the cross. Come along. Die to yourself. Die to your own Ambitions. Come on, you say, I'm a Christian. Oh, yeah, Alan, I, I, can, I can quote the scripture, I'm a Christian. But I want to do this with my life. I want to go there with my life. I have great ideas for my life. Well, my friend, you haven't embraced the mirror. There's no anointing. No anointing. You can't have the anointing. You can't have it. You say, but I understand the scriptures, and I can go Hebrew and Greek. That's all right. But have you embraced the mirror? Have you died to self? If you can't, you can know the Bible, Hebrew and Greek, inside out. But no anointing. No anointing. Well, she faced her enemy, the old enemy Agag. Well, Haman was his name, but if you look up in the Bible, 
Do you know he was a descendant? I find this fascinating. He was a descendant of Agag. He was an Agagite. <laughs> and I thought whenever I read the book of Samuel that whenever you remember Samuel came out and he told Saul, it's finished, you were to kill the Amalekites, and you never bothered. And the Bible says he took old Agag in front of him, the king, and he cut him in pieces. But there was some of them slipped through. Some of the old Amalekites, the enemies of God, that had slipped through, hadn't been dealt with, hadn't been killed, and the old Amalekites were here and there scattered. You know the story that whenever it came to Saul's death, Saul, who was told to kill the Amalekites and wipe them out because they were the enemies of God, that when he came to die himself, that he tried to commit suicide and he didn't die, and this man came over and he said to him, please put a sword in me. I have to die. I can't die. I can't, I can't keep going like this. Put a sword in me. He said, who are you? He said, I am an Amalekite. I'll do the job for you. And down through the centuries, here's another one. Here's an Agagite. This is a descendant of Agag. He has slipped through the net. Whether there was women at the time that were alive and they had children, whether it was that and and they weren't killed, but they were descendants of Agag and they slipped through. And who comes of them? Haman. What does Haman want to do? He wants to destroy the people of God. What's the principle? Very simply, if you don't kill the Amalekites, if you don't kill the enemy, if you don't deal with the enemy within, he'll deal with you. He'll deal with you. But let's come to a close. You see, friends, the Jews always have been and always will be the people of God. We are the children of God. Biblically, we are not the people of God. Christians are not the people of God. That's a misnamer. Now, it's not wrong to say it, but we're not. We are the children of God. The Jews are the people of God. That's the distinct difference. And the Jews are now going to be annihilated by this guy. And so she's sitting up in the palace and old Mordecai, outside her cousin, finds out they're going to wipe us out. So he puts on some old rags and bags and he sits in ashes and the word gets in, he's there every day and the people say, listen, you know, Uncle Mordecai or Cousin Mordecai is sitting out there and he's in bags, he's not dressed up. And she says, what's wrong with them? You see, she's detached from what's going on. <laughs> and so what she does is she said, listen, send them out some lovely clothes. Put on lovely clothes, Mordecai. Dress yourself up. You know, get out of those old bags. He says to her, I don't want any of your clothes. Esther, you're in the palace too long. Esther, you've got used to your comfort. You've got used to all the nice things that were given to you, and now you're so overtaken by them, you've completely lost the plot, Esther. You've forgotten what this is all about. You've no idea what's happening to the Jewish people. Do you know, friends, what can happen to all of us? Is that the Lord saved us, and now we're living in comfort. And we're sitting up in the royal palace, and we're enjoying all the blessings. <laughs> and we've no idea what's going on around us. We've no idea what's happening with the people of God. We've no idea of the spirit world, what's going on. And so Mordecai sat there and she said, listen, why don't you settle down? I have had more people 
over the years that have come to me and written to me and said, why don't you just settle down? What do you keep going on about this, about going after God and all? Do you not just settle down? Just put on these clothes, take off the sackcloth, and just, you know, have it. You know, just... But Mordecai didn't respond. He turned around and he said, Esther, if you think you can sit up comfortably there and that the Jews are going to be wiped out, if you think you're safe in that spot, I want to tell you that you're not. I want to tell you, Esther, in your sleeping state inside the royal palace with your comfort and your ease and and enjoying all that's around you, he said, I want you to know that when the judgment comes, you're going to be impacted. And so what he did was a thing that is desperately needed to be done today in every evangelical church in our country. And that was there was a cry that went from Mordecai right into the heart of where this woman was sitting. And he said, wake up, Esther. Esther, you're sleeping. You're so used to the comforts, you've lost out. You have no idea of the dangers. You're so absorbed with everything that's not important, and you've missed what's important. And he says, do you not even realize that God could have brought you to this place for such a time? That's the cry that's needed today. Wake up. Wake up. Thank God she did waken up. And that's why it's worthwhile always to plead for awakening. Because there are individuals who do wake up. And do you know what happened? And I'm closing. There was a wonderful turnaround because she went and she said to him, get the people to pray, get them to fast. She said, I'll go in before the king. He mightn't put out the royal. If he doesn't, she says, that's it. And she says, if I perish, I perish. She says, I forgot about all the beauty treatments. Forgot about all that vanity and all those things. I've, I, I, you've awakened me, Mordecai. I can see the danger. I've been spiritually revived. Something has happened in me. And if I die, I die. Young woman. Young woman. Very beautiful. But if I die, I die. My friend, she went in before the king. She went before him. And she knew she could be killed. But he held out the scepter. And she touched it. And he said to her, Esther, what do you want? I'll give you to the half of my kingdom. That didn't happen every day. Why did she get fever? Why did the king do that? Well, we know the Lord was in it. But let's just close with two points. Do you remember what we mentioned about her name? That her name represented the love, the beauty, and the promises of God. (laughs) You see, friends, Esther came as the promises of God before the king. And he who brings the promises of God to God is the one who prays well. And she brought those promises. Ah, but not only did she bring the promises of God, 
but she had spent six months with myrrh treatment. She had been through the death sentence of God. She had said, if I perish, I perish. She was in an abandoned state. She was open to the Holy Spirit. She was now walking in a way that pleased God. And the anointing was on her. The anointing was on her. And so she came before God and she came with the anointing and the promises and the Lord said, half the kingdom. You have my favor. My friend, no matter what church denomination or abomination you belong to, it is only as we bring the promises to God with the anointing of the Spirit in prayer that the Lord will open his storehouse and that he does answer prayer and that he does come with deliverance and that he does intervene for his people and that he does come and rescue those who otherwise would be unrescuable. It was only through this event that the Jews were saved. And let me conclude in saying, that it is only as you embrace the mirror of death to self and that, my friend, as you plead God's promises and those that have been given to you specifically in your life, that as you plead them at the throne of God, that God will bring down his enemies and he will bring the deliverance that is needed. Prayer, it has been said, is the key to heaven's treasures. And so it is. Let's bow in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your precious word. And we pray, Lord, that your word would have an abiding impact on all our hearts. We ask for those, Lord, who today have a desire to follow, but need, Lord, an awakening within. O oh God, grant them that awakening. And we pray that you will raise from this congregation this morning those who will pray with an anointing and bring the promises of God to the throne. And Lord, that you will turn our country and you will save it, Lord, and save its people. In Jesus' name, amen.